Well, while I was, uh, while I was traveling last week, I, was, I flew to Nashville and I was in the airport and I saw this little girl uh, in the line, ready to, you know, getting ready to get on the plane. She was in the stroller and she was strapped in. They were, they were pre-boarding her and, and she's just a cute little girl, but she had this bright pink t-shirt on and the lettering on the bright pink t-shirt said, I got the drama from my mama. And that made me think, oh no, this, this one might be a crier. This one might be a tantrum thrower, something like that. It's like, I, I know that's not fair to say. Plenty of, plenty of kids get their drama from their dads. But, uh, but this little girl, somebody put on her a shirt that said, I got the drama from my mama. So I think that was a warning to all the rest of the play, uh, uh, flyers on the plane. Um, I'd bring that up because I promised you drama. In numbers, and the last couple of weeks, we have been doing some more setup, just sort of laying the groundwork, setting the foundation. But this week, we're getting into the drama, and so I want you to be prepared for that. So, uh, so as we begin today, we're gonna we're gonna just think about the drama of the journey in the wilderness. And now, I want you to think about the readings that you have done today, and I want you to think about it in this context. For as long as people have been eating people have been complaining about food. I mean, I don't know, maybe you are on the same circuits that I'm on, but I remember when I was a, you know, when I was a kid, we complained about the, the food at school, right? Um, actually, it began before that. If your mother or grandmother gave you something that you didn't like, you complained about it. Now, my grandmother, uh, in, my, in my family, uh, complaining about food was somewhat dangerous because my Grandfather was a doctor, and my, my grandmother was a nurse, but she was also very socially conscious, was one of those wonderful Southern ladies. And, and here's what happened if you refused or complained about the food at my grandmother's table. My grandfather would explain to you how that if you didn't eat everything on your plate, you would ultimately die from a vitamin deficiency of some sort. And my grandmother would tell you, that if you didn't eat everything on your plate, that you would not be considered cosmopolitan and people would not appreciate you or like you. And so basically, if you didn't eat all the food on, at my grandmother's table, you would die friendless. Um, so just if you complained about the food, that was just what you were looking forward to. Um, but you know, from, you know, from family dinners to school food, how many of you went to summer camp? Um, you know, so it's so funny, Morgan and I had such different experiences of summer camp. At a girls camp, she went to a girls camp where the food was awesome. I went to a, you know, a boys camp where it was not. <laughs> um, I remember college, uh, college cafeteria food, that was no good. And then somebody, I think because I was the only one dumb enough to say yes, uh, the president of my fraternity appointed me as food chairman for our fraternity house. So I not only had to eat the lousy food, I was blamed for the lousy food. So that was, that was terrible. And then, you know, any of you who served in the military, Army, Navy, I mean, I've never heard good things about Army food. I've never heard good things about hospital food. Nobody ever takes somebody to the hospital for their anniversary or something like that. Um, you know, for, for you know, friends who live in maybe you know, assisted living centers and things like that, I, I never hear people rave about the food. Now, some places are better than others. But, but I just, I, I mean, there's, there's just something universal. As long as there has been food, people have been complaining about it. I mean, again, think about the Garden of Eden. God gave them every tree in the garden and apparently at some point they said well that isn't very good Ooh, but that looks good that looks better and so they went for the one forbidden fruit that they were not allowed to eat 
But, you know, when we, when we think about food and we think about complaining about food, it's not just that we complain about food. We, as a culture, have raised it to an institutional level. As a matter of fact, we have raised complaining to an institutional level. Think about how often you see uh, critiques on, on the Internet or social media. You know, if, you know, people live and die nowadays by Yelp reviews or critical reviews of restaurants and things like that. We have invented an entire industry based on complaining about food. How many of you have ever seen the movie Ratatouille? Oh, sorry, that's a little dark. Ratatouille is a, is a Disney movie about... Uh, about a cute little mouse who becomes a chef, and his arch enemy is this guy. His name is Anton Ego, and he is what? A food critic. You know, he is a food critic. But I was also just kind of scanning around for pictures of this, and I discovered this little girl, an 11-year-old, who works for, I believe, Carnival Cruise Lines, and she is a food critic for the, food, for the cruise lines, telling them what's good and what's not. But, you know, one of the things that, that is interesting, actually comes from the movie Ratatouille, one of the things that, that the food critic eventually, when he sort of has, has his sort of trans transformational moment and becomes, goes from being the bad guy to the good guy, he, he says, you know, the problem with critics is they, they don't create anything. They just tear down what other people have created. Unfortunately, we have created a critique, a complaint culture. Our culture nowadays, is, it seems, is more defined by entitlement than gratitude. That's why I wanted us to sing that song, Come Ye Thankful People Come. It's, it's, I mean, it's so interesting to me that, that the, the most oft-neglected of the Ten Commandments is, you know, is the Tenth Commandment, which is what? Thou shalt not covet. You know, thy neighbor's wife, or thy husband, or his, his livestock, or his house. Why, what's at the root of that? It's the whole idea of being satisfied. You know, when you complain, it reflects a dissatisfaction. And what does that lead to? Well, you start looking, if you start reading the Ten Commandments in reverse, coveting is sort of the, it's sort of the birthplace of everything from murder to adultery to idolatry. It's when, you know, when, when we just start living and dwelling in our dissatisfaction, then it really colors everything, even to the point where we become even not satisfied with God and we start seeking other gods. So again, just at some point, read, read the, read the uh, Ten Commandments as like a ten-to-one countdown and see if it sort of tells you something about the commandments themselves and about ourselves. But, but that's, that's, part of the, that's part of human nature. That's part of our fallen, uh, our fallen human nature. You know, and I will say that one of the things that I have learned over the last year is that, is that, well, when we're looking at a pandemic, that one of the chief symptoms of COVID-19 is incessant complaining. Not just losing your sense of taste, not just losing your sense of smell. It is complaining. It is shortness of temper. It is all, it is all those things are related. And I'm sad to say, you know, you all may be familiar with the, the, the slang term, the social media term troll. You know what a troll is? In social media terms, it's somebody who goes onto somebody else's feed and just complains about what they're doing or critiques them or attacks them or, or tears them down. It says just horrible, mean things about, you know, somebody, if somebody puts up a picture and says, oh, well, you look like, you look like a mess or, you know, I can't believe she wore that or blah, blah, blah. But a an internet troll is somebody who just goes around commenting on other people's stuff, just tearing them down. Unfortunately, 
the internet isn't the only place where trolls live. I mean, over the last year, you know, we have, you know, we have seen, we have heard complaints. I, I, will, I will tell you, um, being a pastor over this, la not just here, but everywhere, you know, it, it has been strange. Being a leader in any context, from government to church, I mean, I, I don't know how many times, we, you know, we had barely gotten the cellophane off of the camera boxes, you know, to do the live streaming, which we have never, ever done before. And within 10 minutes, before we'd even done it for people, what people well, this was out of focus. You know, there was too much time, you, there, you know, the, the camera was on Bob too much. Now that's a legitimate complaint. Um, <laughs> But you know, the, you know, the sound wasn't good. This wasn't happening. Or you know, the, you know, you know, just in terms of our COVID, COVID protocols, the you know, the, you know, we're wearing, we're, we're we're too insistent on masks. We're not insistent on masks enough. We're pushing the vaccines too hard. We aren't pushing them enough. We're, I mean, it is it is endless. And and what it all comes down to is the fact that we have just been, we have so been immersed in a complaint culture that we live more with a sense of entitlement than we do with gratitude. And now we may think that that's not an important thing. But, what, but if we read Numbers chapters 11 and 12 in particular, we will see that it is a very important thing to God. This, this dichotomy between gratitude and, uh, and, uh, and uh, complaint. And so, you know, I want to, you know, I want to, you know, go into this lesson with an idea of, you know, what is God trying to teach us, not only about the people of Israel and their journey, but about ourselves? You know, ask ourselves the question, is, is all criticism constructive? Because I've, I hear people all the time say, you know, I would say, well, I, I just want to give you a little constructive criticism. You're a horrible person. <laughs> not all criticism is constructive. Um, and so we want to make sure that you know, when we, you know, as, we, you know, as we look at God's gifts, as we look at God's people, that we, we have a heart of gratitude more than we have a heart of entitlement. And so let's take a look at our, uh, at our stories for today. First of all, we remember that today, um, as, as we begin reading, we're, we're starting a whole new season of Israel's life. They have been at the foot of Sinai for quite some time. They've gotten pretty settled in, and then what happens? The cloud begins to lift from the tabernacle, and it's time to move. How many of you have ever had to move a family for a trip? Boy, that was a time of joy and light, wasn't it? I mean, everybody loves getting to the vacation, but nobody loves the journey. I mean, it's, we always talk about we love the journey. No, we don't. Nobody, nobody likes packing for the journey. Nobody, especially like packing the car, although I really like packing the car. That's just a weird Bob thing. Um, but, but, you know, we see that the, the complaint begins when it's time for the people to move. Now, they've been given their instructions. If you remember this diagram, there is a specific order for how they are supposed to start moving. They've been given the timing. We have the Shekinah, the cloud of God, which will eventually be lifted from the tabernacle and it's time to move. And of course, it will move out in front of the people and you'll have all that, you'll have the tribes in front, the tribes in back, and in the middle is the tabernacle with the Levites and, and they're all moving together. They've now been organized in good order. They've got their, their logistics, their numbers, their head count. They've got their roles, everything is together. But here's the problem. The best camping food is not always the best. 
I mean, I mean, yes, I've been on campouts where the food was great, and I've been on campouts where we had the little dehydrated meals and they were terrible. Well, they go out and they discover that after being settled, you know, for a few years, because they've been at Sinai for a few years now, after being there, there's, it's, it's just, you know, it, it's starting to get a little strange. It's, it's hard. It's hard work. Camping, hiking, you know, moving this army of people, it's hard work. So, in, uh, so we, we see that in, uh, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran, and they set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. So, they, so for the first time in a while, they are moving. Well, I know every person in here has probably been on a road trip with, you know, with kids, either as a parent or as a sibling or as a friend of parents. It doesn't matter how well organized you are. Eventually, people are going to start to complain. And here's what we read in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11, number, uh, Numbers 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And Okay, they complained about their misfortunes. I want you to think about that phrase for a second. What right now are their misfortunes? What are the misfortunes that have happened between chapters 10 and 11? Really not much. It would be, it would be stuff like they had to pack. They had to walk. It was hot. It was dusty. Compare that to the misfortunes of years, several years back, just a few years prior. We were being whipped daily, building monuments to pagan kings. We were, you know, we were, you know, we were under the threat of death constantly. But no, now they're complaining. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is not just the Lord reaching back and swatting the seats, swatting the kids in the back seat. It says that he burned, I mean, fire fell from heaven and he burned outlying parts of the camp. That's pretty serious. And then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The fire was so intense, this attack of God... This chastening of God was so intense that they actually named the place after this firestorm that God sent. Now, I mean, I want us to think about, you know, just, just what's happened in these very few verses. The people complained. The, the word there uh, is anan. You know, it's, and, and it's, a, it's a word, A-N-A-N, in, in, in the anglicized version, but it means to murmur. And you can, it's, it's, it's almost onomatopoetic, you know, an onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like the sound it makes, like babble is kind of like babble, 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 that sort of thing. Anna is kind of like, it's like murmur, 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 you know. So the people are murmuring. The people are anonning. They're you know, and just, there's just this low hum. Have you ever been in a room full of people that are disgruntled or dissatisfied? And this, you know, maybe y'all don't get this as much, but as a pastor, every now and then I'll walk into a room, it's like, no, 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 no. You know. and, and you just get that you just get the feeling like I just walked in on something well here you know here are the people I mean God has again God has liberated them from the land of Egypt 
slavery. He has given them freedom. And at some point, that freedom metamorphosed into entitlement. Where they felt like, now it's not just, it's not enough that God has freed us. Now we need Him. Now we demand that He take care of us in every creature comfort, which He has been doing, incidentally, to the level of our satisfaction. It's not just about freedom anymore, it's about comfort. And so now, now God, so, so really, they're, I mean, they're, it's not just that they're complaining. They're complaining about God. I mean, again, how many of you have ever gone into a long process of planning a trip, of, of putting together a, you know, some kind of event, and people start to complain about it? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I hear, this, I hear this at weddings all the time. I do a lot of weddings, and one of the things I always say to the wedding party at the rehearsal, as well as to all assembled family, friends, outlaws, and in-laws, I say, here's what we're going to do. And I got this from Rob Shelton, if y'all remember, y'all know Rob. I got this from Rob. I said, said, y'all, here's what we're going to do in this rehearsal. One of the most important things we're going to do in this wedding rehearsal is we're going to prioritize some things. We are going to keep the big things big and the little things little. Keep the big things big and the little things little. What are the big things? The big things are the marriage, the bride and the groom, their love for one another, the covenant that they're making before the Lord, the joining of these two families. What are the little things? Boutonnieres. <laughs> Boutonnieres are little. Um, what are some other little things? Bridesmaids' dresses. Now, if they don't have them, if somebody shows up without one, that's a problem. But, you know, but we're, you know, but we're not going to get stressed out about that. What's not a big deal? The, you know, how we're lined up. It's like, you know, once everybody gets in place, it's, it's fine. If, you know, if, if there is a mismatch in height order, that's not going to undo this marriage. We're going to keep the big things big and the little things little. The problem with the Israelites is they started making the little things big. And they started to complain. Now, how many of you have ever found that really incessantly complaining about something really made things better? You all have heard me tell dozens of times the story about when I was playing soccer in high school and, uh, and somebody, you know, we were doing wind sprints one day, just the conditioning drills at the end of practice, and the coach was really working us hard. And somebody on my team, it was not me. Everybody asked me after I tell the story, it was you, wasn't it? I was like, no, it was not me. <laughs> but somebody on the team, yelled out to our coach, I don't see you out here running. <laughs> Completely neglecting to realize that this guy was a Division I college soccer player and was in better shape than all of us. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, from that point on, our soccer practices became his personal workout, which was awful. <laughs> uh, got us in shape, though. But, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you complain and you, you just kind of gripe about, you anon, 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 anon. Because we were, we were sort of like anonning before that. And, and it just got worse. Well, God, they complained. And you know what? God got fed up with it. And you know, we, this is one of those interesting places where we have to understand that the Bible is written not as a book of systematic theology. You know, the, 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 what we read about God's anger is not written from the context of the way Calvin wrote the Institutes to explain in, in academic understanding the nature and character and attributes of God. Is God loving? Yes. 
Do loving people occasionally get angry? Yes. What, what they're doing, what the people are doing, is they are writing about God through the lens of relationship. They're writing to him also, in a very, or about him in a very honest way, which is through the eyes of a human being. You know, Woody Allen once had a, a very interesting line once. Woody Allen, somebody once critiqued Woody Allen and said, why do you always write, your, why do you always write your, um, your plays about real life? He said, because real life's the only thing that ever happens to me. Um, the reason that we hear about God's anger, his emotion, his impatience, all these kinds of things in the story is because the people of Israel were, were writing very honestly through the lens of relationship with God. This is, you know, when, when it says that God became angry, that is not a theological proposition about the, the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God. Yeah, because we do believe that God is unchangeable in the sense that He is always God and that He is always sovereign and that He, is, and that he knows what's going to happen. He's, he, he knows everything. So why would this make Him angry? This should not have surprised God. And yet, God, you know, God decided that you know, in, this, in this context, He was not only going to, to you know, allow the perception of His anger to stand, but He was going to allow that to be brought to us. And why? Because we do believe that God is not an impersonal force. We believe in a personal God who is a person, although a whole different type of person from us, but we do believe in a, that God is a person and not some impersonal force or ground of being or an immovable object or something like that. And so the Hebrews, because they were in this relationship with Yahweh Alekenu, the Lord your God, they fully expected that, that, that their God about whom they complained, would get ticked off. And he did. To the point that he lays a firestorm on outlying parts of the camp. Now, I've always, I, that, that grabbed me, that, that distinction. It, it grabbed me, why, why just the outlying parts of the camp? Well, maybe that's where the loudest complaining was going on. Or maybe it was just sort of a warning shot across their bow. You know, what, you know, it doesn't really go into that, but there is some interesting material coming right after this that I think might have, might have something to do with it. Um, but, what, you know, but, but let's consider, it wasn't just, you know, it, this is not just a story about God. It's also a story about the people, and it's a story about Moses as well, because what was Moses' response to this? Well, when the firestorm came, then the people cried out to Moses... And Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. Now, that's, that's pretty impressive. Like, on the one hand, it saved the people from the wrath of God. But on the other hand, what else did it do? It established Moses' authority. I, I think 100% of the time, the reason that miracles happen in the Bible is not necessarily to fix whatever problem is being addressed. It is to establish godly authority. You look at the, I mean, why did Jesus do his miracles? It was not necessarily to cure the leper, although that is a wonderful, for that, for that guy, for those ten, for those however many, that is a wonderful side, side effect. But it was mainly to establish his divinity and to establish his authority in the witnesses around who would tell the story. Why did Moses perform miracles, to establish his authority as the representative of Yahweh to Pharaoh, to show that this is what a real God can do, not what a fake God can do like Pharaoh. 
And, and so, you know, in, in some ways, this miracle, stopping the fire, you know, or praying to God to stop the fire, establishes Moses' authority. And that's going to be critical here in just a moment. So Moses intercedes for the people, and, oops, I went the wrong way, and the fire stops. The fire stops, and he saves the people. So, so, that's, um, so that seems to be the end of that episode, right? Okay, so, so you would think that you complain, God sends a firestorm, you learn your lesson, right? I was a teenage boy. It took more than once for me to learn any lesson. The people of Israel are in their adolescence. <laughs> it's going to take more than once. Let's look at verses 4 through 9. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and, again, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Here's where the food critic part comes in. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedillium. The people went about and gathered it, and ground it in handmills, and beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. For those of you from the south, that's like a Krispy Kreme donut, okay? <laughs> and when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. I mean, I mean so, so first of all, you know, this, is, this is Moses reminding the reader, reminding us thousands of years later, that God had provided for them. They were not without food. But what were they lacking? Variety. I mean, they, again, even when we are fully satisfied, people find something to complain about. This was not about hunger. This was about variety. Now, I, love, I, I think it's fascinating. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The people of Israel wept again. It says, we remember fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. It's like they didn't come from Egypt. They came from Washington, D.C. Because just because you didn't pay for it doesn't mean somebody else didn't pay for it. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> that got political. <laughs> but, but, they, I mean, but they are in a situation where they have been provided for. You know, what did, what did those cucumbers and, and, and fish and, and leeks and onions, what did those things cost them? The skin off their backs, generational slavery, pain. It cost them a lot. But they're still angry. They're still, they're still complaining about it. They're still, you know, upset that uh, it's like, oh my gosh, we don't have the stuff we used to have. The whole congregation, the people of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You know, this is after God has provided every need for them. But, you know, here, I mean, they, okay, yeah. Maybe manna gets old after a while. I mean, may, I mean, I don't know how many recipes there are for manna. You know, like one day you're banana cake, um, you know, manna cakes and then banana bread. And then I don't know what you, how many ways you can come up with it. But God was providing for them, and yet they were complaining. You know, just, it, it, again, it goes back to the Tenth Commandment. You know, God knew that dissatisfaction is one of the, one of the most toxic, caustic um, 
challenges that, that we have. Covetousness is real, and yet it is the, the thing that the sin that we most likely excuse. But there is this complaining. Now, there's also an interesting little, little sort of side comment in the passage. Let me, let me read again what it says. It says, at the beginning of, the, of that section, it says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Now, if, you know, if you're reading this in a cursory way, you might, you might say, oh, well, it's like, well, this is, you know, these, this is the complainers who are going to complain. Complainers are going to complain. You know, haters are going to hate. So what is, you know, but, but, but is this something different? Well, this rabble, it's, a, it's actually a word, it's a sup-sup. And what it actually means is riffraff. The rabble, the riffraff among them. Who were the riffraff? Well, if you remember when they came out of Egypt, the riffraff, or the asupsup, were all the people who were also slaves but not Hebrews who said, hey, the door's open, let's go. There were lots of other camp followers, lots of other Gentiles who were not of the family of Jacob, were not of the house of Israel, who also sort of glommed on as they were leaving. They're like, you know, let's get out while the getting's good. And so they were kind of coming along. And so it's fascinating here that, that, they, that they do sort of single out, they, they, they sort of say, well, it's these guys who are really complaining. And there are, a lot of, and, and there are lots of apologists over the history of, of, of Israel and Christianity who say, well, it wasn't the pure people of God who were complaining. It was, it was these outside agitators. Because the people of God don't complain, right? But wait, but look at that again. Look at it again. It's not just the... It's not just the Asopsop who were complaining. It says, um, and the people of Israel also wept again. I think it's fascinating how sometimes, there, and, and this, this kind of comes up a couple of times in this passage, not only with the people, but also with Moses. Um, you have this, this sort of the us and them, them mentality that's growing. It's like we're the chosen people of God, and, and the riffraff, they're the ones with the problem. They're the ones who complain. We don't. We're always pure as the driven snow. You know, that, and, and it's really, I mean, you, you see some of the things happening that sort of manifest themselves ultimately in books like Galatians. You know, where, where there, you know, when Paul's trying to expand the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians don't want to have anything to do with it. It's like, we'll accept Jesus, but we're not accepting those guys. And so there's, you know, again, this, this I mean, you've got complaint. You've got sort of this you know, us versus them, you know, call it racial, call it ethnic tension, whatever's going on there. That's very interesting too. But, the, but, but now you have the people and the, the outsiders, the riffraff, who are complaining about, uh, about, you know, about this whole journey again. But now we get a new element that comes in and we see that it's not just the people, it's not just the riffraff, but we also see that Moses starts to complain. And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans and everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Not why have you dealt ill with your people. Last time he prayed for them. This time he's like, why are you, do why, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? What does this mean? It means that even leaders complain. You know what? You've heard me complain this morning, haven't you? I'm a leader. I'm a faith leader. I'm not a Moses. But I have, you know, but I mean, you know, this whole COVID season, I want you to know, 
I'm a lightning rod. <laughs> you know, all those complaints that came to me, oh, they came back out. They shot right back out. Not all of them went into the ground. Some of them went to God. Some of them, unfortunately, went to other people. My dog and my family are safe. <laughs> but, you know, but one of the things that, you know, one of the things I, I you know, that, that, that kind of got kind of a challenge, it got challenging sometimes was that, you know, we would get together with pastoral covenant groups, you know, the people who were supporting each other. And, and man, it was not hard for it to cycle down into, can you believe what they're doing? You know, the, the way people are complaining through this, where's their faith? Where's it? Why are they mad at me because the internet doesn't work and blah, blah, blah. And I, it's not my fault. They don't know how to work a Zoom call and, you know, these sorts of things. I mean, and so what happens? The leaders start to complain. I mean, it's, thank you. It is. I mean, it's, I mean so, so now you've got the people complaining, and now you've got Moses complaining. I love, and I love the way he says it. Because I, I tell you, as a leader, I so resonate with this. And I don't care. You could be, you could be I mean, I'm sure Mayor Nuremberg has these feelings. I'm sure, you know, that both President Trump and President Biden have these feelings. But it's like, you know, and why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Why did you give me this people? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Why, where am I to get meat to give to all these people? What are you doing here? You're killing me, God. And so he's complaining. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden's too heavy for me. I mean, again, Moses is now feeling the weight of their complaints. And he is now, not, not only is he feeling the weight, he has joined in the chorus. He said, and, and now at least, you know, one thing that he said in there, I think is very good. He said, he said, I need help. I can't do this alone. And the Lord said to Moses, um, and the Lord said to Moses, oh, excuse me, this is, a, this is the complaining again. The Lord said to Moses, is, this the Lord, is the Lord's hand shortened? Well, now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So the Lord says, you know, this is, you know, when the people complain, I show them my power. He showed it to them once before in burning the camp. He says, I'm going to do something a little bit differently this time. He says, I'm going to deal with your complaint first, Moses. I'm going to deal with your complaint first. He says, you say you need help. It's interesting the way he handles this. I think it's fascinating. The Lord promises to meet Moses' need for assistance and the people's desire for an alternative to manna. He's going to cover both of these bases. Then the Lord, this is verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and I will let, their, I will let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some, this is interesting, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Now this is interesting because there's an important leadership lesson here. I think the language here is very specific. He's saying, okay, Moses, up to this point, I have given you blanket prophetic authority over this people. But now you're complaining to me. You know, when he asked for help before, he wasn't complaining. Other people said, Moses, you need help, and that was a real blessing. This time Moses is complaining, and Moses is saying, and God says to him, okay, I'll give you help. But this time, I'm going to take part of that spirit that I gave you, and I'm going to give it to them. 
I think that's fascinating because, you know, we don't tend to think of the, of, of the spirit as a zero-sum game. You know, the spirit is infinite. There's, it's not like if I take some from Eva and I give it to Nancy, that Eva's going to have less. <laughs> Eva doesn't get less of the Holy Spirit by, by telling the good news to, you know, to Nancy. But in this case, it's like God says, all right, I'm going to give, I'm going to leave you with a certain percentage of this power and I'm going to give it to the rest of them and see how you like that. So there is kind of a, there is kind of a gig in here. You're going to get the help, but that means you're not totally in control anymore. And that's an important leadership lesson because sometimes, you know, and I, I will say this, you know, sometimes on the one hand, as, you know, as a leader, you have to learn to, to let some things go. I mean, every leader at some point will be told you need to learn to delegate better. Every leader will at some point hear that if you're, a de- if you're good and a gung-ho leader. And that's hard. Because when you, you know, because there is ego involved, there is, there is, you know, control involved, and letting that go is sometimes hard. Because you don't always, it's like, it's like, well, I mean, sure, I'm, I'm willing to give away some of my authority and my power as long as I, as long as you give it to somebody who does exactly what I want and exactly the way I would do it. And that's sometimes hard. And so that, that sort of gigs you a little bit. But only if you're a human leader, if you're God, not, but... For those of us who are human leaders, it gigs you a little bit. But it's also a relief because we do need other people to help us bear those burdens. And, we, and, and what's, I think that in, that in those few lines, God is, is teaching us something about the human nature of leadership, that it is hard to share our, you know, our power, our control, our authority. It is hard for us to release it, and yet we have to. Now, it's fascinating that in the, in the course of this story, Moses does learn a valuable lesson. Because you look, first, it's distributed among all these people, all these, these 70 leaders, and they become, you know, they become people to help him you know, handle his burden. And I, it kind of what my sense is, and even though the text doesn't say it, what I think that they, what the purpose of this is, is that God gives them the Spirit so that now they can go out to their people and they can say, everybody, settle down. This is the word of the Lord. You need to hear it directly from me. You know, I've, I have, you know, you may not know Moses as well personally, but I am the, I'm the head of your family. And I'm going to bring it directly to you. Because sometimes, you know, you can hear it from a government official, but until you hear it from a friend, it doesn't land as, in the same way. And so I think there's part of that going on because it's interesting that they, they prophesied. The scripture tells us they only prophesied for a short time. It was not, this was not like a permanent appointment to prophetic ministry. These guys did not get, they were not given the same gifts that, that Moses did personally, that Moses had personally. Moses is still God's guy. But now he's being told, you have to spread this out. And I think that that's, you know, that that's a hard lesson to learn, but it is an important lesson to learn. And I think it's a little bit painful for Moses, but, he, but I don't think, you know, I, I wonder if the reason God timed it this way is because Moses needed to come to that point where he, had to, where he felt like he needed help. I can tell you that nine times out of ten when I delegate authority, it's because I'm overwhelmed. It's not because I'm feeling particularly generous. And, that, and I fully confess that is me being transparent. That is a character flaw. But, you know, but, but it's nine times out of ten because I'm like, I just can't do it myself anymore. I need help. 
You know, would, would that, we would be more open-handed and say, you know, I want to empower you up front. You know, go, do, run. And that's where Moses finally gets because there are these two guys. Everybody else, their prophetic power fades away except for these two guys. These two guys um, whose names are Eldad and Bildad. Excuse me, Eldad and Medad. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, among these 70, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are, are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, listen to, listen to Moses' attitude here. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. That's what uh, business professor Jim, uh, Jim Collins calls a level five leader. A level five leader is the kind of person who says, my highest and best job is to work myself out of a job. My highest and best job is to empower the people around me so that you don't even need me anymore. One of the things you hear me talk about sometimes in, in terms of Christian education is developing what we call personal spiritual initiative, or PSI. And that is intentionally a pun on the idea of pounds per square inch in your tires. What happens when your PSI is low in your tires? You're inefficient, you're susceptible to a, uh, to, to a, uh, a puncture or a break, and frankly, you just run more slowly. PSI, when, you're, when the air pressure is right in your tires, you're more efficient, you're faster, and you're safer. My job as your pastor is not just to give you content, not just to tell you about what Numbers says, but to teach you how to read numbers for yourself. I have utterly failed, and the church has utterly, utterly failed, if we have made you consumers of biblical information and not disciples. People who could take the Word of God and read it for themselves. Think about what maturity is. Think about marks of maturity. Would you consider your children mature? And I'm not talking about special needs people or anything like that. Please understand this. But in most cases, I would not consider my son, Bo, mature if he could not dress himself. He's, he's almost 18 years old. That's a sign of maturity. At, at 18 years old, he needs to be able to feed himself to a certain degree. Now, we're not saying he makes the best food choices, but he, can, he knows how to you know, cook up some shells and cheese and ramen. and He, he, could, he could survive. He could, it's feral, but he could survive. But there's, you know, but there's, you know, and, you know, and I hate to say it, but gentlemen, I mean, y'all are all older than me. If you can't do your own laundry yet, figure it out, okay? That's something you need to learn how to do. Um, Because I, you know, I know my, I think my grandfather never learned how to run a washing machine. Um, you know, the, but there are certain marks of maturity that we need to have. And Moses at this point is saying, you know, this is important. It's not, just that I, it's not important just that I prophesy, but it's important that others be empowered. He says, would that all the people of Israel would be prophets. Remember last week when we talked about the, you know, the, the offices that Numbers describes? You know, you've got the Levites, you've got the Nazarites, you got the priests, subset of the Levites, and you got and I brought up a fourth one, the people. 
What was God's admonition at Sinai to the people? That you would be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. You know, here Joshua says, Moses, I mean, Joshua says, Moses, these guys are doing your job. And Moses' basic response is, no, they're doing their job. Would that this entire group would be a nation of prophets. Would that this entire church be a congregation of preachers and disciple makers. That's what we're trying to do. The mission of our church is not, understand this, the mission of our church is not to love Christ, love one another, and love the city. That's our motto. It's great for bumper stickers and t-shirts. Our mission is to take those three principles and attach to that the Great Commission. Our mission statement is that we're a church that makes disciples who love Christ, love one another, and love the city. Our mission is not just to be, but to make. And so we, we know when, that's one of the things I had to tell our, our, our um, new member class, our, excuse me, our, our Discover uh, First Pres class the other day, we are now out of the business of making members. We are now in the business of making disciples, what we call an eco-covenant partners. So we are not interested in just adding names to the membership roster anymore. We are interested in making disciples who will make disciples. That is a fundamental shift. And that's what we need from everybody in the church, is to be disciple makers. Now there's a lot of ways that that can happen. We'll go into that later. But we see that, you know, that this is, you know, but the complaints, unfortunately, did not end for Moses. Um, and, we, and we find that, you know, again, Moses is, is typical in most human relationships and that his, some of his strongest complaints come from members of his family. And we see that, that Moses gets directly attacked by his own brother and his own sister. Verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke with, against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. I think that's interesting. That's a double check. Don't, we don't want you to miss that. About the Cushite woman he married because he married a Cushite woman. There we go. Double whammy there. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. So here again is a complaint, but this time we've got names attached to the complaint. This time we have names attached to this specific charge. And who is it? It's his own sister and his own brother. And what are they saying? What are their two complaints? Well, one, we don't like this Cushite that you've married. Number one, she's an outsider. Now, there, there is debate about this. Is this Zipporah, who is often described as a Midianite, but could have been a Cushite, which would be an Ethiopian and African? Again, we get into the sort of the racial, ethnic, Gentile thing. You know, is this an us versus them thing? Um, whatever that is, or is this his second wife, who was a, a potentially a Cushite or an Ethiopian? Um, is, is it about that, or is it really about this second thing? Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? I mean, consider, Miriam was considered a prophet, or prophetess. And Aaron was the high priest. So why is Moses making all the pronouncements? Why is Moses calling all the shots? Why is Moses the one who prays and things happen? So they're complaining. I mean, here you've got, here you have 
arguably the number two, well, not, I don't even know that they were number two and number three. You know, you have, you have Moses in the hierarchy of Israel, and then you've got Miriam and, and Aaron, you know, different jobs, but same level. There is siblings, and they're saying, that's not enough. We don't, want to be, we don't want to be on our level. We want to be in Moses' level. Does that sound at all familiar? We don't want to just be the children of God. We want to be like God, said Adam and Eve. I, mean, I, know, the, I know the devil said it first, but they responded. Dissatisfaction. Entitlement. Same blood as him. Why is he any better than us? I mean, I'm sure Aaron even said, you can't even talk right. Far as you know, as far as you know, as far as Pharaoh knows, you can't even talk at all. I'm the one who's talked to him. It's my neck on the line. Why am I the Why am I the number two guy here? I'm the high priest for Pete's sake. And so they complained, and the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. He didn't. Moses didn't get angry, but God did. And what happened? And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, might make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out in his mother's womb. So here's, here's the, you know, people think, what, and I've heard so many times when people say, Why did God just punish Miriam? Did he? Did he? Is it harder for you to suffer to watch somebody suffer? Consider this. How did God afflict Miriam for her disobedience, rebellion, and complaining? With leprosy. What did that mean for Aaron? Hmm? He's unclean. Well, he hadn't touched her yet. She's unclean. He has to be careful. Otherwise, he can't go. Not just that he has to be careful. He has to do what? He has to push her out of the camp. He's the one who has to condemn her. He's the high priest. He's the one who has to bang the gavel on her. This is his, this is his beloved sister. I mean, so we may think, oh, well, I mean, she's, got, she's the one with the skin disease, and I'm not minimizing that. But it is not that he is unpunished. All of a sudden, the weight of that authority that he has has come crashing down on him. All of a sudden, he is the guy who has to pronounce the essential sentence of death or the banishment. You want more authority, Aaron? Is that not enough for you? You think you should have more power than that? 
course, Moses then prays. He falls on his face and prays for Miriam and for Aaron. And God restores them. And Moses cried out to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. Please. You don't really hear that that often. You know, what, what is, you know remember in, in Hebrew... They don't have, you know, they don't have superlatives and and um, uh, they don't uh, the different degrees of uh, of of language like we do. Fast, faster, fastest. The way they do it is through repetition. They're like, he's like please, please heal her. And this is, I mean, this is the prophet. This is, I mean, this it's almost undignified. Please heal her. Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that, she, she may be brought in again. And that's what happened. She was set outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. They, wait, they stopped the whole procession for her. And after that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So God did heal her. Yeah, Catherine? I'm, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's a verse... Um, yeah, verse 13. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Um, and, uh, and Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm missing. Oh, uh, yeah. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Um, I, I'll confess, I, I've not studied that, what exactly that phrase meant. No, 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 that's okay. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, Lynn, say what you were saying. She would have the same punishment if, you know, if her own father, you know, had said this. I think, I think, I think sort of the summary of a lot of these phrases, it's, in, in many ways, this rebuke reminds me a lot of God's rebuke to Job. Kind of the, who do you think you are? Of course, with Job, it's much more long and poetic. You know, where were you when? Where were you when? Who put you in charge of? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's, it's kind of the, I think it's, it's God reminding her in a sense, how dare you? Um, I, you know, unfortunately, I just did not d- dig into that phrase. I should have. It's really interesting. Um, if her father had butt spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? I mean, this is... It's not that long. I mean, I mean, it's still, you know, it's, she's still got to go through the ritual timeout. You know, and, and I, would, I would imagine that, you know, maybe, maybe that's kind of like, you know, if you were, a, if you were a, a, Hebrew, a Hebrew woman, Hebrew daughter, and your dad spit in your face, that's like, you're going to be grounded for a week. Something like that. I'm, I'm not sure what, exactly what the custom is there. But that's a great question. I'll, I'll pursue that. That's, that's, that's interesting. But again, the, yeah, she stayed out too late. Um, <laughs> um, but... But, you know, really, the, you know, the, and we're going to end there today because we're out of time. But, um, but in all these cases, you know, again, we see, you know, we see that, you know, or we hear the people complain. And God rebukes. But God does, you know, he does restore. Now, he doesn't restore necessarily always the people. You know, the people who got burned in the, on the edges of the camp, you know, that, you know, that was... That was brutal for them, much more so for the people in the center of the camp. And so, you know, we, you know, we need to, those are things we wrestle with. 
But we did see that God did not, did not just write off the entire people of Israel. And that's one of the themes that we need to understand throughout this, this wilderness journey. There will be times when God punishes the people by punishing a segment of them, but there's always a remnant that continues. There's always that, there, there, it is always the people to whom he is faithful, while individuals, though, may end up paying the price. Now, that's not a, that's not a theological proposition or anything about salvation. That's not meant to be a metaphor for your salvation or my salvation or anything like that. This is, this is how God was dealing with his people in this particular season. But it is important because as we look at this, again, I want to bring out what I said at the beginning. What is, you know, what is our attitude towards God and his blessings? All of this takes place under the grander umbrella that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And you're complaining about the vittles about the food. Have we ever found ourselves in that position? I brought you through this pandemic and you're complaining about XYZ. One of the things that Anton Ego, the, uh, the food critic in the movie Ratatouille, um, says, as he says, he says to the chef, he says, your job is to bring the food. My job is to bring the perspective. <laughs> and I think that these stories and numbers are here to give us perspective. What does it feel like to God, to our Heavenly Father, when he brings us on this journey, brings us through these trials, and we're complaining about the food? Let's pray. Lord, you are the God of abundant blessings. You are the God of great generosity and great grace. And yet it never seems like it's enough for us. We always want more. We always want to do more. We always, always want to be more. But more importantly, Lord, we always seem to want to have more. The word more is the only word our appetites understand. Lord, help us rather to understand the word freedom, the word grace, the word plenty. Help us to understand, O oh Lord, the word gratitude. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.